Welcome to the sermon podcast of Northridge Presbyterian Church in Dallas, Texas. I'm Betsy Sweetenberg, the pastor here, and I hope that in this podcast, you see what we seek to do week after week, approaching the stories of our faith with a holy curiosity, not shutting the book because the stories are hard or there are truths we'd rather ignore. Instead, approaching scripture, trusting that God will meet us there, full of grace and truth, teaching us something new about how we are to live in this world God so loves. We continue our sermon series today, working our way through the various types of stories that can be found in the Bible. We're calling it Holy Curiosity, hoping that that's exactly what we'll all develop over the course of this summer. So often it feels like the Bible is a puzzle that we're somehow supposed to explain or solve Like, we need to have answers for everything we read, but we limit ourselves, and we certainly limit God if we think that our task is to solve some mystery or to generate an ironclad explanation for unlikely details every time we crack open the Bible. And so, we're working our way through various types of stories, a lot of hard stories, to see what may be revealed of God if we're curious about these ancient words instead of feeling like we must explain them. Last week, we looked at Genesis and the origin story, the story we tell to instill values and wonder and purpose from the very beginning. And today, we're moving on to deliverance stories, stories which lift up moments of when God hears the cries of God's people and responds. The Bible is full of deliverance stories. The Exodus story is the most famous of those. Our Jewish brothers and sisters remember that deliverance story at Passover each year when they remind themselves over the course of a dinner that they were slaves, but God saw them and brought them out of slavery. That single deliverance story has inspired centuries of faithful people and artists and activists and world leaders. It's a powerful story, but it is not the only deliverance story. Deliverance stories are all over the Old and New Testaments, and if we read them closely, we realize that God isn't the only one capable of delivering. God is constantly equipping others for the work of deliverance, too. The story of Noah and the ark is a story of deliverance. God equips Noah with the knowledge he needs to save his family. In the story of Esther, she stands up risking her life to deliver her people. God came to earth in the person of Jesus to teach us how to be deliverance people. The gospel tells us story after story of Jesus delivering people from oppressive circumstances as he heals the sick, blesses the poor, and spreads good news to the oppressed. And then he always goes on to instruct his disciples, to instruct us to follow suit. But there is one deliverance story I love. It doesn't get much airtime in our tradition, so it's easy to miss. It's the story of Hagar from Genesis. And Hagar's story is tied up with Abraham and Sarah's story. So usually when we talk about them, it's easy to gloss over Hagar in favor of Abraham and Sarah. We're going to focus on the part of Hagar's story, which comes from Genesis chapter 16. 
It's a really rich story, but it needs some context. And so instead of reading the scripture verbatim, I'm just going to tell you the story. And I'm going to use some of Pastor Frederick Beekner's retelling and some verses of scripture along the way, but the Pew Bible is going to be more of a distraction than a help if you like to follow along. But before we turn to this remarkable story, let's pray. Deliver us, O God. Deliver us from all that keeps us from hearing the word you have for us today. Use these words to write your vision on our hearts and on our lips. Amen. Listen now to the story of Hagar. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, couldn't have children. And feeling the devastation of being unable to bear children and so unable to continue the blessing through offspring, she came up with a plan. Sarah had a slave girl. And so she persuaded her husband Abraham to have a child with her slave girl instead. Now Sarah's slave was named Hagar. Surprisingly, Abraham proved willing. And Hagar knew how to do one thing. She knew how to obey. So she obeyed her master, and before long, there was a child on the way. Now, as you might think, that one of them should have noticed that this was just a recipe for disaster, because it seems like there are just certain problems inherent in that arrangement. Resentments waiting to bubble up disagreements about whether there was any emotional attachment between Abraham and Hagar. Had it been anything more than a transaction? As Sarah saw it, Hagar no longer walked around the house. She flounced. And whenever she had cravings for things like bagels and locks, naturally Abraham went out and got them for her. In no time at all, Sarah was livid with jealousy. And Abraham, eager for peace at any price and wanting to show loyalty to his wife, Abraham said, fine, go ahead and fire Hagar if that's going to make things better. So that's what Sarah did. And within a short time, Hagar was out on the street with all her belongings piled around her, including a layette. It wasn't long, however, before an angel of the Lord found her there and persuaded her to go back in and try to patch things up with her mistress. Not really having anything better in mind, Hagar agreed. Then the angel told her that the Lord had taken pity on her and wanted her to know that she was to name her baby Ishmael when he came. He also wanted her to know that though Ishmael was never going to win any popularity contest, he would nonetheless be the first of a long line of descendants. It was a promise and a blessing. And with the confidence of someone who had been seen by God, Hagar did something that no one else, not a single other person in the entire Bible ever dared to do. She named God. You are El Roy, for she said, have I really seen God and remained alive? A few months later, Ishmael was born, just as the Lord had said. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Now, if you heard this story and wondered how it could be a deliverance story, you're in good company. This is a troubling story, which is perhaps why it doesn't get much, much attention. If you follow the three-year cycle of readings called the lectionary, it never appears. You get a piece of Hagar's story, which is much easier to make sense of, but you never get this story. Because it's hard to make sense of this story, Hagar is forced to bear a child and then cast out by, by the very people who forced her into surrogacy. And when God finally makes it into the picture, she's told to return to her masters and make amends. If that's deliverance, then it sounds like Hagar got the short end of the stick. This text is complicated, and as with many complicated scriptures, it has been abused. It has been used as rationale for slaves to return to their masters. It has been used as rationale for women to return to their abusers. And so I just want to lift up that this is a hard text. When I was in seminary, at some point I was in a translation class and I, I translated the line that said, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I just couldn't make sense of it. I got so stuck on it. It was like it possessed me because that was not the God I knew. That was not the God I wanted to know. And so I scheduled a meeting with my professor and I just said, what am I supposed to do with this? I was hoping he would solve it for me, right? That instinct to solve the text. I thought at least he could give me some answer that would put me at ease. Instead, he said, oh, just do what we do with all the other unsavory details in the Bible. Pretend like you didn't see it and keep reading. Now, he was joking, of course. But the point is that there are parts of the Bible that aren't easily solved. There are parts of the Bible that actually aren't solved at all. Hagar's story is one of those. It can't be solved, which I think is why this is a perfect text for us to look at as we practice holy curiosity. I can't offer you any explanations about why the angel of the Lord would command her to return to her masters. I've read a lot about it. I'm happy to have conversations about it. But my invitation to you is to be curious about that detail throughout the week. And then come talk to me and tell me what, you, what you're thinking about it. But for me, in short, it's a testament to how messy Hagar's story is, which is why I love her story as one of deliverance. It's so human, and it is so true to any kind of deliverance that you and, my, and I can expect to receive. Now, Moses' story of deliverance is grand. So is Mary's. And the chances that you and I are going to experience deliverance like that well, it might happen, but it's unlikely. If we are to experience deliverance, it's probably going to be packaged a little bit more like Hagar's. And that can be hard, because when we think about being delivered from something, it seems like it should be such a final thing. When we hear deliverance, at least when I hear deliverance, the kind of deliverance I want is final deliverance, something permanent. Don't we yearn for deliverance that's final, for family conflict to cease once and for all, for depression to lift the gray veil once and for all, for war to stop once and for all, for all the rifts in a marriage to magically be healed once and for all, for anxiety to dissipate once and for all, 
for racism and political vitriol and violence to end once and for all. Isn't that what deliverance should mean? An end to things that plague us in our society once and for all. Be done with it. We want the kind of deliverance that is written in Sharpie so that we can trust that it won't be erased. But Hagar shows us a different truth about God's deliverance. It appears in lots of stories of scripture, but it's still so easy to forget. Many of scripture's most momentous events occur not at the start of a journey, not at the destination, but in the in-between, in the messy middle. As one author puts it, all the good stuff happens in obscurity. Isn't that so true of our faith? All the good stuff happens in obscurity because it's in the in-between that you can't help but ask yourself how you got there and where you're going. It's in the in-between when you have to grapple with all the fears and struggles and questions that have been hiding inside. It's in the in-between when there are no easy resolutions or tidy endings. It's the messy middle where God so often shows up in the messiest of moments that somehow our vision becomes clearer to witness something new of God's presence. And if anyone knows about the messy middle, it's Hagar, pregnant, homeless, alone, no prospect of a way to care for her child, no idea if there's anyone close by who could deliver this child No one even knows Hagar's name. Abraham and Sarah couldn't be bothered to learn her name. She was simply slave girl to them. So you might imagine that if her masters couldn't be bothered to know her name, then how could she trust that anybody else would care about her? And it's in the middle of all of that mess that God shows up. And you know the first thing God does? Calls her by name. Hagar. The angel says, where have you come from and where are you going? God knows the question that's on her heart. That's the question we all ask when we're in the messy middle with nothing but anxiety left. Where did we come from and where are we going? It's in the mo- those minutes that God shows up when we're asking those questions. And not only does God call Hagar by name, but God blesses her. And yet all of that, all that goodness happens at the same time that the angel tells Hagar to go back to her masters. That's not final deliverance. Hagar's story doesn't get wrapped up all pretty and tied with a ribbon. God shows up, but the messiness endures. And even so, Hagar receives her deliverance. She does the thing that no one else in all of Holy Scripture does. She names God. You are El Roy, she says. That translates to you are the God who sees. Hagar's story is my favorite story of deliverance because I think it is the clearest picture for us of what it means to be delivered. When you experience deliverance, you will have that same testimony as Hagar. You will know that God sees you. And to be seen in your suffering is the most basic form of compassion. We worship a God who sees us. 
Hagar hadn't been seen by anyone else in her life. So we can trust that God sees us even and especially when no one else does. But Hagar's story also teaches us that we can't fool ourselves into thinking that to be seen by God means the suffering will stop once and for all. It doesn't mean that the depression magically dissipates or the wounds are finally healed or that wars suddenly cease. You see, we don't get delivered from suffering and pain and violence once and for all as if going through that is some sort of mandatory hazing in our faith. We have to be delivered from suffering and violence and pain again and again and again. And we have to participate in delivering others from suffering and violence and pain. That is what Jesus equipped us to do. That is the work he called us to to see others in their suffering and deliver them from violence and poverty and oppression. To be seen by God means that we are called to see others as God sees them. But in my experience, moments of deliverance are the moments when our faith becomes most real. Moments when we join our voices with Hagar and say, God has seen me because it's in those moments our hearts are transformed. Rachel Held Evans notices that some traditions incorporate a time for testimony on Sunday mornings. We're not going to do that this morning, don't worry. But testimonies are deliverance stories. Go to a church where they practice this, and you'll hear the people of God recount their stories of deliverance from the grip of illness, from the temptation to covet and steal, from addiction, from grief, from a bad break, from a cruel employer, from a water bill that without a miracle never would have been paid on time. And at the heart of all those stories, whether it's spoken or unspoken, is the same refrain, God made a way where there seemed to be no way. God saw me through. God saw me. And maybe these stories seem like small potatoes compared to the testimonies of Moses and Mary and Hagar, but counselors and neuroscientists continue to confirm that the ability to shape a narrative from our own experience and then connect it to a greater story is essential for us. It is essential to developing empathy and a sense of purpose and well-being. So every time we retell stories of God's faithfulness in the past, We're reminded that if God can make a way for Moses and the Hebrew slaves, if God can make a way for Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad, for the grandma living on Social Security, for the alcoholic marking 20 years sober, for the strung out pregnant lady mumbling incoherently about rutabagas, then maybe God can make a way for me too. So I wonder what your testimony is this morning. When have you been able to declare that God has seen you, that God has made a way when there seemed to be no way? Remembering that, may we all go out into this world trusting that the God we worship is a God who is about the business of delivering us again and again and again. We worship a God who makes a way when there seems to be no way. Could there be better news than that? this day. Amen. Go out into God's world in peace. Have courage. 
Hold on to what is good. Return to no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all persons. Love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as you go, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the power of the Spirit bless you and keep you this day and always, always. Amen.